Welcome back to Many Windows. This is season four, Many Windows. I am one of your co-hosts, John Cassie, and I'm joined as always by my dear friend, Jennifer McGlemory. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, John. This is so exciting. We've kind of been on a rather long hiatus. A bit, yeah. Yeah, in between seasons three and four, but I'm excited for this season. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I I think this is going to be, this is going to be a good one. Folks, listeners, uh, this season is going to be about myths, not uh, not Zeus and Loki. That's a, that's a good show, but that's not the one we're making. Uh, rather, uh, we're going to be talking about myths related to education. And just from a preliminary conversation, we've got at least 12 episodes for you in this season. And I think they're going to be, I think they're going to be pretty interesting. And I, I hope that they generate a certain degree of, of uh, uh, controversy and, and feedback, right? Uh, I'm reminded, Jennifer, of the very first episode we did, season one, episode one, uh, All Children Lie. And I think that, that, that we got a lot of feedback on that. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that uh, that we'll get a lot on on episodes in this season. So, what's topic one, Jennifer? Well, what we're where, where are we starting? We're going to start with um, failure is not an option. That's our myth. The myth teachers believe, parents believe that no child should fail. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so that's our topic for today. Um, yeah. We've got some great ones lined up. Because as John and I brainstormed, what are myths that teachers believe about education, that parents believe about education, we came up with a robust list. Mm-hmm. Like you said, John, the, the feedback that I get the most um, from listeners is about that episode one, season one. So we're kind of going back to that format a little bit. I've got... Yeah. I have one book here that I'm going to reference heavily, but there's actually a couple more that I'll mention around this idea yeah. of, um, that it's okay to fail, um, is, yeah. right? The myth busting that we're doing today and actually the importance of allowing kids sometimes the opportunity to fail and why, why that's important. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's one of these notions that uh, I suspect we'll be referring back to as we talk about other education myths. Um, well, and even, though, even the word fail or failure, we're not strictly talking about the sense of grades, just grades, but allow, yeah. right? Allowing kids the opportunity to try something on their own and mess up. So it's going to be a little bit broader discussion than just grades, but of course, it also relates a lot of times to homework assignments and things not getting turned in or things being left at home. And what do you as a parent do in that situation? And what is the danger of always rescuing a child from any of those uncomfortable experiences that we've all had? Right. That we, well, now see, there's, there's one of your core points that we have all had, right? That's part of the problem, isn't it? Right you and I are generation X. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're not in our thirties. We're not millennials. We're not 
Z. We, by virtue of the way that we were raised, had these experiences. And I think one of the arguments that we're making is that there's a collective social decision mm. in this country. And this podcast is, is recorded in the United States. We have international listeners, right? And it may be different in, in Germany, or it may be different in uh, you know, South Africa or wherever, right? Uh, but in the United States, we increasingly attempt to shield mm. young people not just from the consequences of making the wrong choice, but from ever having a choice to make. Mm -hmm. And that is not productive. Well, and I may have mentioned this in an, in an earlier episode. I remember so vividly, you know, some parents that I had come to know quite well because their children had gone through kindergarten through fifth grade at the elementary school where I was the principal. And they were very involved in the PTA president. So I'd gotten to know them very well. And their kids were going on to middle school and they really wanted their kids to walk to middle school. That had been yeah. their experience. I think both of them had grown up in the Midwest, you know, and to your point, not just internationally, but like this is, everyone has to think about this whether you're in an urban neighborhood, suburban neighborhood, rural neighborhood, right. all of these things come into play. So they wanted to, they felt like these two parents that their kids, they lived close enough to the school that they could easily walk to school. And that was going to be what they wanted their kids to do for middle school, giving them that little bit of independence. Yeah. And, but they were worried about the societal shame mm -hmm. because as they were they talking- talking to um, other parents, the other parents were aghast that they would let their kids walk to school in middle school. So, you know, there's a, I was listening to a podcast. Um, I wish I could remember the woman's name. Now I should have looked it up before I started this, but she's, I think she's written a book or done some lectures called free range parenting. I think she's based yeah. in New York, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah talking about letting her, she, her child, letting her child at like age eight or 10 ride the subway and all the backlash she got for that. So this is, this is also kind of an idea that is wrapped up for me in, in this idea of, are we going to give our kids um, enough space for them to screw up? And mm. so the, I know around free range parenting, the fear is that something is going to happen to them. An external force is going to come in like kidnapping, or they're going to hit by a car, those kind of things. The reality right. there, I think statistically is your child is in much more danger when you drive them to school than their time at school, walking to school, because car accidents are one of the leading causes yeah. of injury and death in kids. Yeah. You know, you, you and I, in our conversations, I, I have referenced on any number of episodes of this show and in other contexts that uh, no one loves a misdirected moral panic more than the citizens of the United States. And this is another example of this, right? Your point is, is, is exceptionally well taken. Every minute you spend with your children in a car is uh, is more problematic than 
if they're in a bus mm-hmm. or on a train or walking or virtually any other context, because the car is where the risk is, right? And uh, the uh, fear of a random kidnapper or a predator or whatever, uh, the overwhelming majority of these kinds of acts of violence in the United States are perpetuated by people known to the victim, Mm -hmm. right? It's almost never some rando, Mm -hmm. Uh, not never, but Mm -hmm. close enough to never that if you're weighing that versus the car and you have an opportunity to allow your child to walk to school, the safer choice is let them walk. Mm Right. Even though it may not feel that. But what I even, you know, even more prevalent is, you know, the decisions parents probably have to make on a daily basis. A child has forgotten something at home. Maybe it's uh, a practice uniform for their team that they participate in after school. It's an assignment that they stayed up late working on and did a great job on. It's their lunch. It's their PE clothes. You know, I mean, this must happen at least once a week to every family that, I mean, I, I know I've left things behind, right? This is something that we all do. We, we leave things behind. So then here you are, you may be in a situation where you notice it, you're home or maybe, you know, mom's taking them to school or they've left with carpool or bus. And here you see it kids gone, what do you do? Right. Our instincts are, I want to, of course, you know, my child worked so hard on this. I want them to get credit. I'm, I'm going to save them. They're going to be so happy. Uh, Of course, you know, I'm going to run down to the school and turn it in for them. That's, that is what I see. We had at my school, we have a shelf for all the things that are forgotten and parents are dropping off for kids to come and pick up. Right. Um, What I'm gonna argue today is that you need to not save them every time. Yeah. Yeah, you need to allow them to have the experience of going to class, looking for that thing that they spent a lot of time on and not having it, not being able to turn it in or not being able to practice because they didn't have the right gear that they needed. They need to be able to feel the consequences of that so that next time they will remember. And it, it often takes a few times for kids. And there are definitely kids and people that this is an area of deficit, an area of struggle yeah. um, because it is part of focus, attention, executive functioning skills. Yeah. All things we're going to talk about even more, I think, in, in later episodes. In subsequent episodes, yeah. yeah I mean, and you yes, know, I'm sorry, John, go ahead. Your, your point is, well, let me reinforce something that you, 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 sort of, you didn't glide over it, but you, you said it. I think it's important to be, to be reinforced. Don't never help. Just don't always, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, you know, you as the, as the, you know, the, the, the parent here have to exercise your good judgment to be available or to, to not be, right? And, you know, because some parents are never available because they have other obligations mm-hmm. 
that mean that that kid is not going to be rescued. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, you know, there, there are questions you can ask yourself, right? Is this a homework assignment that can be turned in the next day? Maybe a few points will be deducted. Low stakes, right? Like you got to evaluate the stakes of this. That's low stakes. Let them suffer those minor consequences. Right. Is this the final game, uh, the playoffs of the team, uh, at, you know, and your kid is the star pitcher or something like that? Maybe that's the time you're going to step in and uh, and run back home and get something right right if, or it's the it's the last day of the semester and this is a big project right. and it's you know right yeah you're yeah. going to make decisions this isn't a hard and fast rule every time right yeah if if uh if if your kid is in the second grade and is doing uh, uh a demonstration on uh turning cream into butter by hand and you know, she inadvertently left the butter churn at home. What are, this what would are the be 19, the 1880s that we're uh, recording from? <laughs> Coming to you live from 1873. My butter it, churn it, demonstration. Yeah, um, I don't know where that came from. That we're, we're, we're recording somewhat early in the morning, and maybe I'm <laughs> addled. Um, but but I mean you 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 take the point right now. What why do you care? Well, because if you don't if you don't allow the young person to own the responsibility of being in charge of getting their book bag together, whether they're really capable of it or not, right? Without the practice, you don't develop the skill. Okay, and one of the one of the ways that you encourage the the neural pathways to develop is to make strongly reinforcing feelings associated with certain acts and choices, mm-hmm. right? And nobody wants that uh, of having not gotten it right. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're talking about. And you can, as a parent, in that moment when you're making the decision of whether to take it to school or allow them to, um, you know, face the consequences at school right. of forgetting something, maybe they're hungry because it's lunch or what. Then that night, you can, you, your child is going to come home upset. Right. You know, they're going to come home upset or hungry or they miss something. They're sad. That's the time that you can say, all right, let's not have this happen again. What are we going to put in place? Yeah. So that you don't have to go through this again. And that's a great intrinsic motivator for kids. Yes. I'm here. I'm here to come along beside you. Let me tell you what I do. You know, like I make a list at night of the things that I need to take with me tomorrow or, Mm -hmm. you know, each night before we go to bed, let's look at what you need for tomorrow. Let's put it all in your backpack and let's always put your backpack by the door or mm-hmm. let's as a family, you know, how many people have a, a bowl or a rack where they always put their keys, right? I'm yeah. raising my hand. You're raising. I-, I do too. As soon as I walk in by the door, I have a little spot that I always put my keys. So we've developed these routines to help us, um, 
to not forget things that we know that we're going to need. And so that can be the impetus for a conversation with your child and you let them decide where do you, what's the, the thing, you know, you're going to need, what's your place. This is going to be your own place that you're going to put your things that you've got to take in the morning, or it's a post-it by the door that says, you know, lunch, backpack, jacket, PE clothes, whatever you figure out what that is. You need to do it at night during homework time. But I think those routines and those kind of strategies that we all have as adults, this is the perfect opportunity to start teaching those to your kids and allow them to be involved in creating those things. And they take more ownership of it. And then they feel the success of it. And they feel even better when they remember things the next time because their system worked. Correct. Correct. And what better conversations for you to be having with your, you know, with your, your kids, Mm -hmm. then what are some strategies that we think are going to work for you? Let's try something because not everything works for every kid. Yeah. And if you are just imposing your way on your kid who isn't wired the way you are, that's just going to leave them spinning. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it's, it's, it's critical to the development of these kind of metacognitive skills Mm -hmm. that they are responsible for them, that they don't get them right. Um, No, no real harm or foul, you know, in the long run. Right. Um, But, you know, we need to, we need to, to, uh, we need to allow that and parents need to, to parent to that. And teachers need to apply guidance, but not punishment. And you know, one of the one of the things that I struggle with sometimes as a teacher leader is some teachers uh, practice. We'll call it a practice, right? of imposing penalties onto students that they would blanch at if they were applied (laughs) to them for the same act, right? Absolutely. And so for me, uh, the academic achievement of, of a student to the degree that it can be measured and reported and the ways in which you can do that ought to be separated from what I might call learning habits or, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, uh, skills for success or, or what have you, right? Because those are, those are different, right? The ability to organize a notebook effectively for you and the ability to draw a logical inference from a science lab mm-hmm. re- really ought to be seen as uh, because you know, the reality, the reality is that I think if you really look closely, teachers, at your grade book and at your grades that you're giving, which we're going to do a whole episode on this one. Yeah. But how much of your grades are dependent upon a child's ability to remember and turn things in on time versus mastery of the content? So right. if, if your if your grading habits and mine were, I'm going to tell you as a teacher, mine were. You turned oh, it yeah. in, 
great. You got the full credit. Oh, you turned it in late. You get half credit. Oh, you turned it in a week late. You know, no credit. All right. those things. So what is, what is that? Yeah, what is that? As opposed to what is that A, B, or C at the end of that grading period really reflect? Does it reflect mastery? Some students take a little bit longer. If a, a student produced a great project and turned it in a day late, does that mean it's it's not great anymore? Um, and it, it doesn't fulfill the requirements of, uh, of the learning? Or is it fulfilling the requirements of your timeline? So I think as right. teachers and administrators, we have to ask ourselves those hard questions. And I'm like you, John, I definitely have teachers that when I need something turned back into me with their signature on it, or I need X, Y, and Z. I'm always having to chase down 25% of the staff because Uh they didn't turn it in the first time. And so I give them an extension and then I still have a few more that I'm chasing down. So, you know, and I've, I've shared that with my staff too. It's, uh, but I do find that teachers that are very organized have those really strong executive functioning skills themselves are always the one to be the first one to turn something in. They tend to be the most rigid with their students because right. it comes easy for them. Now, this is another episode coming up this season. Right. It, it comes easy for them. So they have a hard time understanding why it doesn't come easy for their students. And they like following rules. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And yeah. not every kid does. Yeah. Right. And that doesn't make the kid who pushes against rules bad or needing to be coerced this isn't uh this isn't 17th century puritan massachusetts right where you know you have to you have to crush the will of the child that is the purpose of education is to destroy a child's will right uh you know that's not where we are um so we've got you know we we, there are things we can do within school yeah just like there are things at home yeah uh, that that we can do because the benefits of trying a thing and not succeeding in it, yeah, are 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 off are off the charts, right? Ask any coach, ask any art teacher, ask any gamer, mm-hmm. right? The whole edifice of game design acknowledges that you are going to not succeed the first time or the second time right yeah and you you cannot win consistently even with a great strategy mm-hmm. right and you have to learn how to live in that mm-hmm. of you really did nothing wrong but you didn't succeed yeah the uncomfortable zone well and the other thing is you know, we think of this as a generational difference as well. Because it partly Uh, is. Right? So I was kind of, I was, in preparing for this episode, I was thinking, how did we get here? It seems like, you know, it's worse now than it ever was. Now, I think we have an episode on that too. That you're we do. Everyone and everything. As no. I espouse one of the the myths that we're going oh, right, to rebut, right, right, but right. It, you know, how did we get here? And so I wanted to kind of do a little bit of reading and find out is is this my imagination? Is this? But 
so I look, there's a couple of books that I, I looked at for this episode that I really like. And the one I want to give you some quotes from right now is called The Gift of Failure. Yeah. It's by Jessica Leahy, L-A-H-E-Y. It's a great book, really accessible, real easy to read. Um, the chapter titles, you can, you don't have to read the whole thing. You can be like, oh, here's one specifically about middle school. Here's one about household chores. Like you can, you can uh-huh, kind of pick uh-huh. and choose and pull some things out. Right. But she, she starts by talking about, lay, you know, laying this groundwork. How did we get here? Or, you know, is, is this a crisis? And the interesting thing is, you know, as we were talking about butter churns and the 1800s, <laughs> you know, this was a time uh, before compensatory before education was required um, and kids were working and people had many children and a lot of them didn't survive. So you didn't get too attached to your kids. Right. But over the years, as the number of children per family shrank, parents focused more on the individual child's emotional and psychological needs. And I thought that was a really interesting point. Um, that for sure rings true, I think, to most of us. Uh, of course, you've got one or two children. Um, they're so valuable to us in a way that 100 years ago, they had learned to not value their children in the same way. And right, then, right. right? And then there was this interesting um, time in the 1960s where attachment parenting was popularized, mm-hmm. right? So it was this idea and it was, it was the idea was to strengthen the parent-child bond through constant close contact and nurturing, right. Right. okay? Um, and that those strong bonds were going to, that were established in infancy, were gonna persist through a lifetime. So, you know, it was so important. Those, and some of this still, um, still is, is referenced, believed, you know, considered today, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Yep. By doctors, psychologists, to a certain extent. Um, one of the problems though with that is around that same time, like the 1970s and 80s, it, a recession hit, women had to join the workforce or wanted to join the workforce. Right. It, it opened up more to women. Um, you needed both mom and dad to be working to be able to support your income so all of a sudden you have these two things you have the uh, um doctors and psychologists saying how this time together in infancy and early childhood is so important and yet there's this this pressure that the parents need to the mom especially needs to get back to work yes um so this results in a ton of guilt for yes. the mother. Yes. Because she wants to be at home. She believes that being at home during these, these critical times is going to make her, her child become a successful young adult and right. going to have all of these innate skills that we want our kids to have, competencies, right? Right, right. right. So I think that's where part of it stems from is this push and pull um the another book that i referenced or that i I've, I've been reading that i really like is called the blessings of a skinned knee oh yeah that's right? a classic and uh it's 
I'm not sure, I can't remember who it's written by, but it definitely talks about the Jewish faith and how there is a tenant of the Jewish faith that as a parent, your job is to prepare your child to be independent, to be a, an independent, functional adult. And so from the beginning- Wendy Mogul. You, what's that? Wendy Mogul. Thank you. Yeah, okay. I just needed to let it come to me. <laughs> from the beginning, you, you are um, allowing situations to happen. You are creating situations that is this practice for kids to become, you know, competent, independent, fully self-sufficient. Right. And that's the job of right, a parent right. for your exactly. child, right? To be fully self-sufficient and able to launch, able to go off to college and get a job and join the workforce. Right. Uh, you know, the, the, the purpose of education is ultimately to allow the learner to be able to do whatever the learner wants in their adulthood, right? That would create a corollary in the purpose of parenting is to nurture and encourage a, 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 a set of practices Mm -hmm. that is going to allow the adult to be a fully functioning adult, mm -hmm. right? And there's, when, when teachers focus too much on grades and grading the wrong thing, what we create are people who are obsessed with getting an A mm -hmm. and therefore are incapable of or are anxious, too anxious to actually do it, to take the risks that really are required in the 21st century, particularly to, to make the, the big solves, right? And, and if you parent to, to, to too much to that, to that type, mm -hmm. what you end up with is a, uh, you know, is an adult who's dependent on other people to make choices or to to make evaluations of what they're doing mm -hmm. because they don't have confidence in their own in their own capacities. Why? Because they've never been allowed to make them, mm -hmm. right? Well, uh, for and for teachers, there are two terms that are coming to mind. There's so much literature and research out there about intrinsic versus extrinsic mm -hmm. motivation, right? Absolutely. Interesting. I think there was even um, something in, in this book, The Gift of Failure, I'm sure in every single book you're going to read on this topic is going to reference some of these seminal um, uh, studies that they did where, you know, they have kids come in and they say, you're going to do this activity. You're going to take this test, whatever. There's one group that they just say, you're going to come in, do this activity. That's it. We're, we're doing a study. Okay, great. The next group, they tell them you're going to come in, you're going to take this test and you're going to get a grade for it. You know, and then there's another one where they, uh, uh, they say, we're going to tell you at the end how you did. And then, right. you know, the more 
the kids where there was no grade and even like no feedback attached to it actually did the best. They persisted longer in the tasks. There, there are studies where they've done um, tasks that are very difficult, but they, the kids just, and almost unsolvable. Right. And they want to just time how long the students uh, will persist at trying to do the task or they give them a large amount of time and just kind of see how long they spend working on this versus, oh, there's puzzles and other things in the room to right. do, right? right? All of these, there's different variations of this same kind of study. Time after time after time. If they just have the kids go in and say, we just want you to do this, they, this there's a challenging problem in here, give it a try. They will persist longer than if you say, if you do better than another group, if you solve it in a certain amount of time, if, if they start putting these extrinsic rewards right. or things like this, the kids do worse. They don't persist it long, as long yeah. um, and they go off and start doing other things instead. Yeah. Daniel Pink writes about this a lot yep. in uh, the work context, right? Uh, right. That, that there are, there are appropriate ways to reward and compensate and then there are ways that actually damage the workforce yeah. right That's there right. are ways to there are ways to design gamified experiences that reinforce uh intrinsicness mm -hmm. and then there are not good ways that reinforce extrinsicness right mm -hmm. and you, you you don't you want to try to design away from those those rewards that are outside, right? You want you want to encourage the the the, the learner to develop a sense of autonomy. Not now. A de, now I'm dependent on the game's mechanics instead of my parent or teacher or older brother or whatever, right? You know that's what we're trying to work against. This kind of learned helplessness, mm -hmm. right? This kind of dependency. Right. We want we want to encourage learned confidence right. and capacity. Right. And that only comes from trying a thing in good faith. It doesn't work. Try it again. Well, look at the success of Wordle. OK. OK. Go. Or even the crossword puzzles in the paper. People do these. Why are they doing them to then send it in to earn some sort of prize for doing it? No. Yeah, no. Just doing it purely for the challenge of doing it. Yeah. Our brains actually do enjoy a challenge. In, oh, yeah. Right? No question. So we know that this exists, and yet somehow we've, we've resorted to bribery so many times in education that we've forgotten this simple fact that challenging, yeah. interesting problems, kids will, people will tackle them so just for the sake of tackling them if they're challenging and interesting and they get to use creativity. If it's boring, rote memorization, right? This is where all the literature kind of separates these two ideas yeah. out. Yeah. Because teachers are going to push back like crazy and go, I can't math teachers. I can't get you know, my kids to do their math work, their homework at home. I can't get that. But the stuff that has just kind of a simple answer, depends on rote memorization, is, is 
not inherently interesting to the child, then sometimes we have to attach some kind of incentives to those. But anything that requires creativity, um, uh, thinking out of the box, all those kind of 21st century skills, all those skills we want them to develop, those higher level skills, the extrinsic, the rewards actually undermine yeah. that kind of uh, development. Yeah. And frankly, thinking in terms of those rewards encourages the development of weak lessons that aren't very interesting, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, the challenge for teachers, I think, is, okay, I've got these topics mm -hmm. uh, or I have an area that is not interesting to all kids. I know in you know middle school and high school, my math teachers, we talk about this all the time, how the kids come in lacking math confidence. They already have this set mindset that they are bad at math. And that's, that's, an, that's something that my teachers are working against. One of my teachers does a lot of work with kids on growth mindset and fixed yeah. mindset. Yep. Um, and this is where, you know, over-parenting undermines what contributes to that growth mindset. Yeah. And it inhibits the intrinsic motivation um, because it teaches kids, over-parenting teaches kids that without their help, without an adult intervention, then the kids are, are um, not going to be able to overcome you know, they're not going to be able to meet that challenge. They're not going to be successful on their own. That's yeah. what coming in and rescuing them every time actually is telling your child, you yeah. are the one who's the hero, the savior, which feels great as a parent. You, that initial, like, oh my God, thank you so much, mom. And that, hug, that feels great. You feel like you saved the day and you're the hero. What you are doing ultimately though, is undermining your child's ability to develop those uh, skills that they're going to need later on. So it doesn't happen again. Right. How does the young person develop their, their self-concept in a direction that means that when they encounter some kind of a challenge that they'd never before encountered, they believe in their, in their mind and heart that they're capable of overcoming challenges and that challenges are not going to destroy them and they're not going to, uh, uh, you know, they're not gonna leave them, uh, you know, with no grades or with, uh, you know, no job, right? Or whatever, right? And that's where this sort of fixed versus growth comes in, right? How does the person with the fixed mindset, see the world. Well, it's a dangerous place that has to be really controlled and you don't want to experience things, right? Because you can't really shape it. So the and they come mindset, in saying, I already know I'm not good at math. I already I know just, I, I can't I, do I just that. want to let you know that coming in, right. I'm not good at math. Right, whereas the growth mindset framework would, would say, uh, when I've had challenges in this subject in the past, I've worked hard to, uh, to learn from those challenges. And uh, I think I'm capable of doing anything. 
And I hope you'll help me with that. And so here's, here's where for both parents and teachers, the, the idea of praise, what are you praising children for plays into the development of a growth or fixed mindset. We've got a whole episode on praise coming, right? Yeah. Yeah. What are we praising our kids for? Are we praising them for getting that A or are we praising them for sticking with something, persisting with a difficult math problem or a difficult project? Or is it just that we're praising them for the perfect score? So that's something we're going to talk quite a bit about um, because we also have to ask ourselves, are we teaching our children that if they try something new and fail at it, uh, that that failure is evidence that they're not actually as smart as everyone's been telling them all along. And this is particularly prevalent for gifted students. This is why you see these gifted students in middle school and high school suddenly are starting to check out because everything has come easy to them and they've only been praised for their great grades, the things that they've done. And, and they don't, I haven't developed those skills. What happens when I meet something that is hard and Mm -hmm. doesn't come easy to me? Mm -hmm. Whereas some kids who have struggled, I see this with some of our learning disabled kids who have struck, everything's been a struggle for them. Well, by middle school and high school, they have developed this set of skills. They know I got to work for an hour on this assignment. I've got to redo it a couple of times to turn it in and get a good grade. Like those are Mm -hmm. the skills they've developed because they've always had to work a little bit harder. They end up being more successful. Some of our gifted kids drop out because they don't have those same perseverance and resiliency skills. Right, right. Um, So yeah, go. I'll just say some questions to ask yourself as parents. And even as teachers, are we putting our child's long-term development and emotional needs before their short-term happiness? Yeah. Do we have that backwards? That's the critical question, right? Yes. That's what you can say to yourself and remind yourself in that moment when you're trying not to save your child, remind yourself, okay, am I considering, am I putting their long-term needs ahead of this short-term moment. Right. You know, parent, parent X, imagine yourself at age 50 with your 20, now 24 year old child. And the conversations you're having now, do you want them to be the same as they are now? Or do you want the adult child to be really demonstrating strong adult skills. Can you let their life be just a little bit harder today Uh so that they will know how to face hardships tomorrow? Correct. That's the question. And I always like to tell, sometimes I'm meeting with parents about discipline. Their child has done something stupid. They've been impulsive. They've, you know, they've hit somebody, they've stolen something, whatever. And they're facing a consequence. Right. They're facing a consequence and the parent is coming in to try and get their child out of this consequence. And what I tell them in middle school and I even more so in elementary school, I said, this is the time when it's low stakes. You want to let them feel the consequence when the stakes are low. What This is middle school. They're not going to get kicked out of school and they're not going to... Um, 
you know, get thrown in jail for this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. However, if they do not learn from this experience and it happens again, when they get older, the consequences are much, you know, much worse. Yeah. That's when it's going to get not great. Yeah. The stakes are much higher. So that's another thing that you can kind of try and remind yourself if I can let my child experience the, these consequences, experience this difficult time, cry, cry through it, be there and pat them on the back and then pick up the pieces afterwards and say, okay, what do we need to do? So it doesn't happen again. So you don't have to feel like this again and, you know, let, and then let your child participate in these kind of goal setting with you um, of some goals that they have to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And So I think that's where, where we can kind of leave this episode is just hopefully giving our parents um, something to think about in that moment uh, where they're, they're faced with the decision of coming in and rescuing their child mm-hmm. from something that is ultimately low stakes. Right. Or if they're going to allow this to be that learning opportunity. And it's not just going to be one and done, right? We understand that. Yeah. And there are for sure kids that are chronically disorganized and chronically. uh, And there are uh, parents who are chronically disorganized, right? We all know people. We all know people uh, who who are like this. And I think we're going to, we're going to wrap into one of our episodes coming up this, just the important like executive functioning skills, because this is organization, planning, time management. Right. These are all what we call executive functioning skills. In middle schoolers, these skills are still developing. They don't have them. Some kids innately do have some stronger skills in that area, but a lot of kids, this is the part of the brain that is developing during middle school. Right. And I'm, I'm always interested to see, you know, sixth graders that come in who really struggle with this by eighth grade, if they really have struggled and persisted, they're mastering these skills and going off to high school now ready, you know, with these skills. So we'll talk a little bit more about what you can do to help foster those skills. This episode's getting a little long, so we'll tack it on to another episode, I think, but that'll be important because there are things you can do to strengthen these skills and kids. We talked a little bit about it, checklists and routines and things like that, but we can go into more depth on that in a later episode. Right. You know, in, in, in a lot of, a lot of these cases, the, the myth is that you think the child ought to have developed this skill by X (laughs) when in fact, no, it's X plus five years. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, And, and so we'll, we'll come to that. Um, right. So, uh, friends, you know how to get in touch with us. I can be reached at uh, John Cassie at Gmail, and we're on Facebook, and uh, you know ManyWindows.net. And Jennifer, do you have a do you have a, an, an email you want to share? Or sure, uh, my email is simply J McGlemory M E G L E M R E at Gmail. So feel free to write to us if you've got feedback, thoughts, and uh, we look forward to hearing uh, from you. 
And we'll be back in a few weeks with our next episode in this series on myths. Thanks so much for listening. Bye, everyone.